invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. That's where we'll be the next few weeks. So I told you I'm in the habit of praying the Lord's Prayer often. I do it at home. Usually anytime I start a prayer in my private devotional life, it's usually the Lord's Prayer. And the first words, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Sometimes I struggle to get over those words because the fear of any repetitive ritual is that it becomes routine and not ritual. And in other words, it becomes empty and not full, meaningless and not meaningful. And as I study and sit and saturate in those words, your kingdom's come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's really my heart cry for my whole life of my desires, not only for my life, not only for my family, not only for my church and community, but for my nation and my world, because we have a lousy kingdom. <laughs> Amen? And God's kingdom, His will, would do much better to satisfy our souls and our longings for justice and peace and love and spiritual prosperity and maturity and sometimes I only not only do I feel but I know that I feel like we're a bunch of blind self-centered rats <laughs> without knowing it sometimes even as Christians Kevin go do this says God but that makes me uncomfortable that's a lot of energy I don't want to rock the boat hey church invest in this says God that's a lot of money that's a lot of work do you want us to help those people Hey, Christian, pray for this politician instead of scrutinizing them. <laughs> well, scrutinizing is much easier. Complaining is much better. And what happens, I believe, if we pass over the Lord's Prayer and just play what we really want to, then we might pass over what's important to God and fool ourselves into thinking that we have more pressing issues than God. And so then when tragedy hits, when catastrophe hits, when the hard choices come, when the, the problems arise, we're out of focus because we're self-focused, we're not God-focused. And we open up the book of Ruth today to see a sinner respond to a catastrophe in a sinful way, and lo and behold, as we all should know better, his choices produce more tragedy. Please stand in honor of reading the Lord's Word today as we read the first five verses of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Epithites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, as we open up this book, we see really, in a general sense, it's a tale of two kingdoms. And we're grateful that your kingdom is always victorious. And we're grateful that you take any of the messes that we make with our life and you redeem. Father, would you press us with that truth today? Father, I confess to you that I feel I have nothing to offer from this book, but I pray that your spirit would pour out abundantly, that your grace would have been pursuing us all week, and that today you would change hearts, change lives, that you would save sinners, that you would redeem situations. Holy Spirit, we trust you for this. You have our attention, so get me out of the way and say what you would wish. And we pray these things in the power and the work and the grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Is it be, or could it be that, that terms and names and places and just the fact that we're reading a book of the Old Testament many times turns ears and eyes off for people? who want to read the Bible and just soak in practical advice. <laughs> I have a surprise for you. Ruth is very practical. The book of Ruth, written by someone somewhere at some point in time, that's really what it amounts to when you study. There's so many debates about it. <clears throat> we take into consideration Ruth 4 at the very end, and the author knows who King David is, so we can at least assume it's written probably after the birth of King David and probably after David became king. But we read it and it's definitely the real world. <laughs> because it's about sinners trying to work out their problems. And it's about a good, gracious, and providential God blessing them without even showing up in the form of an angel or a miracle. Scholars and commentators have so many words for the themes to describe Ruth, words like redemption, love, covenant, kindness, but I'm going to sum it up for you in one word, hope. I mean, this is really a, a hauntingly recognizable world. All it takes is a little bit of background to show you how familiar this world is. See, Ruth begins this way. In the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Ruth begins in a place that frames the story for us in a very significant way, telling us it's the time of the judges. And in your Bibles, if you just have a plain Jane Bible with no study notes, just text, and if you were to turn your page back, to the end of the Judges, the book of the Judges, we really get this wonderful view of what life was like. That was sarcasm in the time of Judges. Because Judges 21-25 tells us that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, some of us might read that and say, well, obviously the author of the Judges, the book of Judges, is implying that there should be a king in Israel. But actually, the last part of that verse informs us that the author of Judges is making a statement about their spirituality, not their nationality. 
See, their state before God, not their state with or without a king. Because the reality is, is that Israel has a king in the time of Judges. It is to be understood that Israel does have a king. It is not just that Israel is not recognized. It is just that Israel is not recognizing their king. They're boycotting their king. They're ignoring their king. In fact, when Israel petitions the last judge, a guy named Samuel, for a king, we see God say to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So it is not that there was no king in Israel, it is that there was no acknowledged kingship of God in Israel. So that's where the author in Ruth frames this story out of the gate. It is a time of the judges, it's where everyone is doing what was right in his own eyes, and in fact that statement, I think, captures a current view on morality in our day and age. As moral relativism, there are no absolutes, and what's right for me may not be right for you, and that's okay, right? Vice versa. That happens in our culture, in our society, and even in our churches. And I know I'm only 28 years old, but I'm kind of sick of it. <laughs> I'm kind of tired of that, because it's just weak. I don't know about you, but lately... And I hate to say it's only been lately. I've been spiritually hungry. I want God to move. I want God to speak. I want God to act. I want God to shape my heart and soul to be obedient to his will. And I personally feel like I've been waiting and thirsting and hungry. And oftentimes, in dark times like here, there's not even a hunger because there's not even a notice. See, for this man of Bethlehem, he's literally hungry. There was a famine in the land. In the Old Testament, we see that famines are at times a sign of God's judgment. Well, why do I say that? Well, it's pretty obvious. In Leviticus chapter 26, we're told, God says to his people, and in spite of this, you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. So some of you hear that, and you say, just another reason I don't read those first five books of the Bible. <laughs> That's just one little snippet out of the entire law. There's enough love and grace and kindness and peace to go around for everyone in those books. So it's the time of the judges. There's a famine in the land. And I really feel like the author is saying, it's just a big pile of sin right now. <laughs> Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. The land of Israel is more like, hey, I won't tell God if you won't tell God. And so, what does God do? And when I say judgment... I wonder if some of you feel like, oh, God's getting out his big paddling board and he's about to whack the backsides of all Israel. There's famine. And I want to differentiate between God's active judgment or wrath and God's passive judgment or wrath. See, we talk about a worldwide flood or sulfur and fire raining down on Sodom and Gomorrah or ten plagues over an entire nation. These are all signs of active wrath. 
But Paul in Romans 1, and I would even state that the cycle of the judges that John was referring to about Israel, gives us an indication that God judges or shows wrath in a passive way. And I would argue you don't want either. But when Paul uses language in Romans 1 that God, quote, gave them up, that's a, a passive wrath. And what that means is that God lets people eat the consequences of their sin. He's not going to protect them. He's not going to, by his grace, protect them from the stupid things that they do. And that shows up later today in our text, I think. But for now, famine could be active wrath that God is intervening in nature. He's restraining fertile ground in judgment to get Israel's attention. He's saying, hey, depend on me. But what is this sinner, this man in Bethlehem, going to do? We see that a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. We're told that a man of Bethlehem, which means house of bread, so there's no bread at the house of bread right now, and he went to sojourn in a place called Moab. See, this is a sinner sinning in response to God's judgment for their sin. Israel is a place where if you are a, a good citizen of the kingdom of God, the words Israelite and sojourn, a word that literally means to be a resident alien, really shouldn't be in the same sentence. Because if you were an Israelite, and if God is your king and you're part of the kingdom, what are you doing outside of the kingdom? You're leaving the presence of God. You're leaving the promised land. You can't keep the covenant, especially concerning the feast days of the tabernacle, if you're not near it. Furthermore, he went to Moab. Moab, the person, was related to Israel, the person, through Israel's grandfather, Abraham. Abraham's nephew, Lot. Moab is the child of Lot and Lot's firstborn daughter. So we have a nation that began through incest, which the law admittedly had been given to humanity after Lot did that. But speaking of the nations, Moab had never been good for Israel. In the book of Numbers, chapter 25, we see that after a little intermarriage between the people, Israelites are worshiping idols. In Judges chapter 3, beginning at verse 12, the cycle of the judges that John talked about, Israel does good, is blessed, then they get complacent about God. God allows Israel to be taken captive. Passive judgment. One of Israel's captors was Moab in Judges chapter 3. So we have all these backgrounds, all this, this legacy, these laws of old, all these loaded terms converging into one major act of a sinner, I believe, in Ruth 1, 1. It's a man who sees he can't eat, so he decides to take his family away from the kingdom of God into the nation that historically isn't a friend of God's or a friend of Israel's. But this man may be motivated by a desire to provide food for his family, but he doesn't go to God first. He seeks to solve the problem himself. Verses two, verse 2 says, The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So not just sojourning there, now we're going to, quote, remain. 
there in the pagan country away from God. I want you to see from the outset that what appears to be one man's desire to move simply to provide food for his family has horrific implications. See, we live in a world today that suppose every source of income here failed you and the fields became infertile and the livestock died, it struck with disease and the wildfires became worse every year and it was too much, so you decided to move. Suppose you even went to Canada, of all places. None of this would really, in a general sense, seem to have any spiritual indications for you. Unless if you decided to move to a town with no Bible-believing community, so you would forsake the community of Christ, that would be a sin. But for Elimelech, this was clearly sin. It may not have been clear for him, because as far as he knew, he's living in a time of relative darkness. Everyone's sinning, no one's paying mind to God, and so perhaps to be a Jew in that time is just nominally meaningful. See, for Elimelech and, and Israel and covenant religion, Abraham, Isaac, Israel, Moses, those are all towering figures. And since we're in the land of, of Israel, four names like George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and Abe Lincoln, you know, towering names, they mean something to us. As for the, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Elimelech maybe heard of the stories. You maybe not be too familiar, even as we are with the stories of the law. One asks for meeting regularly with God's people or doing the feast he prescribes or going to the tabernacle. Well, no one else does, and everyone's okay with just the nominal tradition and patriotism we have in Israel. So like us so often, Elimelech never stops to think. He never stops to think, why is Bethlehem in famine? Could it be that God is not displeased with us, or not even consider that, that God is judging, or at least consider praying that God might provide? And so Elimelech goes to Moab. And for Elimelech, God is not in the equation. Staying in Bethlehem to worship and repent and cry out to him for food is not in the equation. Considering the spiritual safety of his family isn't in the equation. Instead, picking up, leaving the people of God for the spiritual darkness of Moab is his answer for their hungry bellies. Why? Paul, while writing to a young pastor named Titus, gives us an insightful view on how sinners operate by recalling how he, Paul, and how all of us once were. And he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. You know, for a living like he could have took the time to fast. <laughs> the idea of fasting is to practice self-control over the body and make our bodies subject to God. It is to say to God, it is so crucial that I'm led by you, that I hear you, that I do what you want me to do, that I commune with you, that I will forego eating so that I might receive spiritual nourishment. And for Elimelech, he doesn't even think about God. Instead, he's operating life with God in one compartment. Maybe personal heritage, patriotism, you know, God, guns, and gravy mentality. He's somewhere in there between the guns and the gravy. But right now, my body, my passion says, food in abundance. God's not giving me food 
right now, so I'm leaving his house. Instead, I'm going to receive what I want from his creation, not from the creator. Which is odd, because in Israel, he has access to him, to the creator, right? Israel is God Almighty's people. It's the creator's people. And Elimelech is not trusting the creator, despite the fact that all of Israel, and Elimelech personally, are responsible for the current predicaments. He's going to go somewhere else to get what he wants. Let me give you an illustration, because some of you might not be seeing Elimelech's sin in the right light right now. My family and I moved to Kamei when I was age four. We moved from New York. That's not Moab. It's a state called New York. We lived on Hill Street. It was upper New York, not New York City. Maybe that would help you. But we lived on Hill Street in a town, in town in a small house next to my grandparents. It was fun and cozy with us four kids, three of us boys sharing a bedroom, and my sister literally sleeping in the pantry, converted bedroom. And I got in the habit as a young, too smart for my own good five-year-old, where I'd get up extremely early, earlier than all my family, and I would have breakfast. And then I would wander over to my loving grandparents' house, 25 to 35 yards from door to door, catch them getting up and have breakfast with them. After that, I would come back to my parents' house. Lo and behold, they're all getting up and having breakfast. Why, sure, I'm, I haven't had any breakfast. I'll have some with you. Three breakfasts. Now, we can all laugh and say, funny kid who doesn't know any better, and I obviously didn't. But obesity set in on an early age. And I was enslaved to one of these various passions, as Paul called. And it wouldn't have been mean-spirited or unloving if my parents, who knew what was happening, came in and disciplined me. And I would say, oh, it was me. I'm famished. I only had one breakfast. You see that that's not mean-spirited. God has redemptive reasons for his judgments, not just unloving, mean-spirited, no food for you, because I can withhold food and you can starve. Does that make sense? There was a right thing to do for my morning nourishment, and I chose the wrong thing to do. Even though loving grandparents who loved spoiling me, and I helping myself, and my family feeding me, all those three things themselves are not sins, but the way I did it was sin. Elimelech, wanting to provide for his family, is not sin. But God has order, and his order at this time in history is his people in Israel to trust God when Israel is famished and Moab is not. It's to keep Israelites in the covenant community of God's people. When even though it seems, and hey, it probably is, better living conditions outside. Why? Because ultimately in the end, where it counts and where it matters, God has better provisions. God has nourishment for the soul and nourishment for the eternity. God satisfies where Moab never could, never will. And we will see that quite starkly now in verses 3 through 5. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years. Both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Elimelech ironically means, the name, my God is king. And he left God's kingdom, 
And we're not told that these were the actual names or names just given by the author wishing to foreshadow what's going to happen because Malin and Killian literally means sick and dead or ill and destroyed. You get the picture. <laughs> I mean, when that story comes up with those names, it's not going to go good for these guys. Calvin literally means bald. But I'm still glad I went with that name and not these names. <laughs> and if anybody wants to make fun of Calvin, there is a bald prophet in a story about two bears. Never mind. <laughs> Verse 3. Is a transfer of main characters. We see that Elimelech is referred to as the husband of Naomi. Kind of a literary reframing of the story. We're moving from the man who left Bethlehem to talk about Naomi. We're going to see that actually, though the book is named Ruth, Naomi is kind of the main character for the majority of the story. She talks more than Ruth does. It's Naomi who's given the front stage at the end of the story, also not Ruth. So the two sons took Moabite wives. There is no explicit prohibition against marrying Moabites per se. Deuteronomy 7 gives Israel instructions not to marry any of the seven major nations that they're doing conquest over. However, let me show you an enlightening section of scripture in Deuteronomy 23, which states, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation, None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet with you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. Told you there's enough love to go around in there. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. So we see then a basically prohibition of communing with these people, something that Elimelech ignores, we shouldn't be surprised, <laughs> or perhaps intended from day one, maybe Elimelech intended for his family to stay in Moab. If he knew anything about the law, he wouldn't be able to bring any Moabites back. However, the sons took Moabite wives Again, they're all in sin simply because they shouldn't be in Moab to begin with. But they certainly can't come back to Israel if they wanted to, and we see that they don't right now because verse 1, Elimelech was a sojourner in Moab. Verse 2, they remained in Moab. And verse 4, now they lived there. See the progression. It's, but it's not just a physical progression, though, a spiritual one. And ultimately, we see the products of Elimelech's brilliant plan to save his family from hunger. He and his two sons die, leaving the most unsuitable person alone in Moab, the only Israelite left in Moab, Naomi, alone, without a husband, in a foreign land, without two sons to provide for her, in a pagan godless area. She hasn't been provided for by a godly husband, and neither ultimately was she provided for by a wayward husband. I want you to see that what anyone thinks they may not get with God will ultimately not get without God. Elimelech thought that God could not ultimately provide, and then temporarily Elimelech may have been provided for in Moab, but it cost him his life, it cost him his son's lives, it cost him his wife's provision, 
He sought to find life and ended up losing it. Sounds familiar. Now at the beginning of the story, we saw that it was the time of the judges, and we saw that there was a famine, and I suggested that famine may have been God's act of wrath, that God is intervening in nature in the day-to-day world to restrain the fields of Israel. And Ruth 1.6 actually tells us that God may be doing the famine because then he visits his people Bethlehem and blesses them with food. I bring that all up to then look at Elimelech and his two sons. Did they die because of God's active wrath or his passive wrath? That is, maybe God is not doing the flood and drowning these people. He didn't do Ananias and Sapphira on them, but rather, maybe the natural outcome of leaving a familiar land, going into a foreign land with pagan gods and rituals and sacrifices and diseases could have done their part to wipe out these men. We don't know. But the bottom line is all of this is very brutal, isn't it? And how many of us, hopefully not on the same scale, but in some form or measure, we've been here. We can probably pinpoint the stupid decision, or the time when God was out of the equation, or maybe like Elimelech, we can maybe pinpoint the times where maybe we knew or suspected how God would respond in the equation, but we didn't like what he was offering, so we ran. And after we ran, we set up shop away from his kingdom. We found that our disobedience has led to only more tragedy, only more death. i got to be honest, I can look at times in my own past and see that I've been there before. But I can also look around at some neighbors and some people I know, and this is where they're at. They're in Moab, collateral damage is happening, or I know will happen. They're setting themselves up for tragedy because people are running. See, God is a a purifier, and purifying is hard. God only sent famine to remind his people to depend on him. Is it bad to depend on God? No. It could be hard at times to trust him. And like anything that's hard to start the habit, but once it's a habit, it's a habit. Is correction painful? When is it not? I want to give you a snapshot of somebody I got to know while I was working Pepsi, and I want to paint you a spiritual parallel to Elimelech. When I worked for Pepsi, I got to know other vendors that came to the stores I did, Coca-Cola, Frito-Lay, the beer companies, produce providers, and so forth. One guy, he had to have been 21 in order to work for the beer company. I think that birthday was the day before I met him because he looked pretty young. <laughs> he came in on Saturdays. This is whenever, before I was married to Christy, so this was in Conagers. I was just working a few hours each day, seven days a week for Conagers and Kuski's Market. And this beer guy came in on Saturdays. He was the weekend guy, the only day I saw him. And what was sad to me, was that for him, he and I had some small talk every weekend. And his small talk was always about a beer run that he had done, and it usually ended up with him and a girl doing things they ought not to do. And this was a new story, a new adventure out of different bars and a new girl every weekend. Every weekend. And it's stories like that that made me earnestly desire when I pray, God, your kingdom come. Your will be done, because God's kingdom for that guy is a better kingdom, a more satisfying kingdom, a kingdom that leaves a legacy and a hope and a future. God's will for that guy is a better will. 
It's a more satisfying will. God's kingdom in Israel was famished because it needed reproving, correcting, and disciplining. And Elimelech, like so many of us, run to the road with least resistance. And we're willing to go outside of God's kingdom to do it because maybe we love comfort. Maybe we love fast results. We love having control. I don't have to trust God to provide. I can provide. I have a place right here. The author of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 12, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Elimelech ran from discipline and thus lacks the peaceful fruit of righteousness because now he lacks his life. And because of his sin, is where Naomi is at. Eve took the fruit, but God came to Adam because of the headship of Elimelech. And like Adam before him, he failed, and his wife and his two Moabite daughters-in-law are left in pagan, dark Moab. No provider in Elimelech. He thought he could be a better provider than God. He was wrong. What does Naomi need? She needs a redeemer. She needs a savior. She needs a provider. You can see it in these verses, can't you? You can see Jesus. Elimelech was another Israelite who did what was right in his own eyes when the judges ruled. Jesus was an Israelite who did what was right in his father's eyes when Rome and the corrupted Jewish aristocracy who did what was right in their own eyes ruled. Elimelech was a man of Bethlehem sojourning in the kingdom of Moab, Jesus was a man of Bethlehem sojourning in the kingdom of the prince of the power of the air. Elimelech came from Bethlehem, the house of bread, with no bread to offer. Jesus comes from Bethlehem and is the bread of life. Elimelech, in a time of temptation and famine, tried to survive on his own efforts. Jesus, in a time of temptation and famine, survived on the bread of life, the word of God. Elimelech left God's kingdom because he was hungry. Jesus left God's kingdom of heaven because his people were hungry. Elimelech disobeyed God thinking he could provide. Jesus obeyed God coming to earth to provide. Elimelech left God's kingdom and ultimately died taking two others with him, leaving others in the pagan world. Jesus left God's kingdom and ultimately died with two others with him saving others from the world. Elimelech failed in providing bread at the table for his bride. Jesus succeeded in providing bread at the table for his bride. Elimelech's disobedience brought death and a broken family. Jesus' obedience brought life and the family of God. There is a Redeemer. 
Jesus is his name. And God takes Elimelech's sins and Naomi's circumstances and he's going to bring redemption. He's going to bring love. He's going to bring Boaz. And they're going to ultimately have King David. And King David is ultimately going to have the greater King David. And so if you, like Elimelech, come to a time of famine, of disobedience, the disobedience of others or yourself, and all you see is darkness and famine and death, and you wonder, is there a way out? Is there a redeemer? Is God's judgment and famine for my chastisement, or is the chastisement of, of God now on King Jesus? And this is just discipline that's going to yield within me the fruit of peace and righteousness. Am I being disciplined for punishment or training? Oh, friends, I invite you, wherever you are at spiritually, if you are a limelech, Stop running. Don't run from God's kingdom. Don't run from King Jesus. You're going to fail. This is your warning. If you're a limelech and if you haven't left yet, accept your training. Allow the Holy Spirit to work in you and through you. If you are Naomi and you've been brought to this place outside of your own control and now you feel you have no way out, and relationships are breaking, and the surroundings are dark, and the prospects are none, and the money has stopped, you serve a Redeemer. You worship a Redeemer. If you're not now, you can be the child of God, and you're the child of a God who excels at redemption. His name is Jesus. Amen. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we thank you for your generosity, for your grace, for your abundance that you give it to us in, and sinners undeserving. Nevertheless, here we are saying to you, it's all I have to offer. Will you at least take that, my sin? And you say, yes. I will put it on Jesus because I love you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for voluntarily laying your life down for us. Not because, because you felt obligated, but because you love us. And that you had authority to, to lay it down and authority to pick it up. And you did pick it up. And we serve a risen Savior. We serve a risen Lord. Father, many of us are in spiritual darkness. We don't know how we got there. Maybe some of us do. But we bring it all to you again, saying, please redeem Father, would you do that gracious act for us today? Father, would you move us with this grace? Would you have us respond to you and respond to others with the love that you give us? Father, we thank you for all these things and we pray all these things in the name and work of our Redeemer, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.